over the last couple years, God has been changing the way I approach his word. So in my own personal time, I'll open up the Bible, or if I'm gathering with God's people here on a Sunday like today, I used to come in as, what does this passage have to mean for me? Or how can it be applied into my life? And the problem with that was I became the center of it versus knowing God being the center and becoming more like him. And as this transformation has been taking place in my life, there has become a greater hunger to know God, to know who he is, all of his attributes, and to grow in my relationship with him. As one of our student uh, School of Bible students said this year, he's like, the more I study God's word and the more I take these classes, the greater hunger I have to know who God is and to become more like him. And I was like, that really summates and, and summarizes what uh, we desire for. And I think that's really you know, God's desire when he says it, through Jesus, he says, I pray that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you would know him and you would become more like him through this. As we study who he is, we learn that there are attributes that we share that we are like God in, and there are attributes that we are not like God in, and he doesn't desire us to be like him, but it should lead us towards a relationship with him. These shared attributes, where we can be like him, that's what we call them, and these are unshared attributes where we cannot be like him. A shared attribute would be an example of God is holy. He says, be holy, for I am holy. So this idea that, that he wants us to be set apart, he wants us to be different than the lost world around us. Or uh, God is love, so it says that we love because he first loved us. So he gave this his example of love, he displayed that love through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then we now know how to sacrificially love those around us, our family, our friends, our neighbors. But then there are these characteristics over here that we do not share, that we are not like God in, things like his immutability, where he does not change. Things like his sovereignty, where he's in control. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. Omniscient, he's all-knowing. Um, things like the fact that he's eternal or self-existent. These are all areas where God is not, we are not like God in these areas, and we should worship him because he's not like us, but we cannot become like those things. The problem that a lot of us face is we try and neglect these areas where we share with him, which leads to transformational life, and we try and focus in on these areas over here where we cannot be like him. And in the church, it's what we call idolatry, where we try and be like God in ways that God doesn't intend us to be. And I want to build this case that God being different than us is actually really good for us, and it's healthy for us uh, to not try and focus in on these areas. And as we're jumping into this passage this afternoon, we are going to see this conversation that has been taking place that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks, and this dialogue between the religious leaders and Jesus. And every question they ask us in this passage, Jesus responds pointing them to his deity, his godness, his character, and how he's different than them and ushering them, hopefully, into a relationship with him. And that's my hope, is that it ushers us into a relationship with him if we do not have one. So let's look at this, the first question seen in verse 48 of John chapter 8. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? He's like, are you a Samaritan? Do you have a demon? That's what they ask him. 
And the Samaritans also would question the uh, religious leaders of those days if they were true children of Abraham uh, because of their identification of how they would identify with Abraham. But that wasn't like the main focus of their question. Their main focus was like more of an insult or reviling him. Like they're, they're trying to get a dig at Jesus here. Because you see, there was this growing animosity throughout the history of Israel between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans were believed to be physical and spiritual half-breeds of the Jewish people. And so they were basically calling Jesus a heretic and a false teacher. And they call him a demon. They're like, you're, you, you have possessed a demon. You're mad. You're evil. And Jesus is like, no, I'm, like, no, I'm not. He's not going he's to respond that way. Uh, and we see this unfold as Jesus responds to them. This insult towards being a demon was the same insult they used towards John the Baptist. But notice how Jesus responds. Does he respond with reviling them? Does he come back with another cutting, uh, sarcastic remark towards them? Verse 50, or excuse me, verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. It's like on the contrary, I actually don't have a demon. Um, I'm actually honoring my father, and by you claiming that I do have a demon, it's actually dishonor, dishonoring him. But what we see here is that Jesus calls God his father, which would make the religious leaders very uncomfortable in those days because they had uh, more like respect towards even the name of God. Like They wouldn't even put vowels in the name when they would get ready to write it or put it down, Yahweh, because uh, they had such respect and re renowned uh, honor for him. And yet this claim that God is his father would make them very uncomfortable because there's this familial tie that's taking place between Jesus and God, and it's leading towards this unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father that would make them feel very uncomfortable. In John 14, 9, Jesus says this about this unique relationship that he has with the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. By this claim, Jesus was making himself equal with God the Father. There is this equality that he is, he is establishing, and he's saying that I am equal with God the Father. And this unique relationship that I have is ushering me into the same nature as my Father has. So there's this equality nature that's taking place. Now, they may have the same nature, but they have a different function in the Godhead, Okay. I know this is going to be like a little bit more uh, theological, a little bit more heady, but we're pursuing after a God who is bigger than us, and it's harder to understand in some areas, so bear with me a moment. We're going to try and simplify this. So God the Father wills something, still equal with the Son. The Son then carries out that will. Different function, same equal nature, okay? So the Father chooses... The Son redeems. Same nature, different function. We see that in verse 50 here. Okay, look at this unfold. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So this one, he's referring to his father. We see that in the context there. And he's like, I'm not over here for self-glorification, self-gratification. I'm here to honor my father, and he is the judge if I'm carrying out that plan and purpose for him. You see? Same equality, same nature, different function in how it plays out. An example of this we see in the uh, book of Ephesians in chapter one. We see the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit seals. 
all equal with God, different functions in the plan of salvation to save you and I. You see, God the Father had a purpose to save humanity. And he did that through Jesus leaving his kingdom up in heaven and coming down to earth to fulfill his Father's will. And he did that to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10 tells us. So you and I were lost in our sins, lost in our trespasses, and we needed to be rescued, and that could only happen through a perfect holy God becoming human, living a perfect life, and dying a sinless death for those of us who are sinful, all of us are, and it bridged this gap so that we can have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And he did that by, as Hebrews 9.28 says, to bear the sins of many. Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserved on his shoulders and put it on him so that we are declared righteous and he took our sin for us. It happens through God's Father's purpose being fulfilled through his son, Jesus. He says this next uh, in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So he's personalizing uh, God's word right now. He's not saying this is just the Father. This is also me. This is quality component. And just as I am carrying out the function, I'm carrying out the plan that the Father has for me, I'm saying that in my word, if you believe in me, if you have faith in me, the evidence of that is you will carry out my word as well. And so he's, he's making this distinction because the Jewish leaders that he's talking to here, they believe because they were descendants of Abraham, they were good. Abraham faith had faith, so we're just inherently uh, inheriting that faith. Our father Abraham was a man of great faith, so we're just adopted into that. But here he says, no, 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 no. You have to not only believe in me and have faith, but there has to be the evidence of that faith in obedience, right? God does not have just grandchildren that are just adopted in. They are children. Meaning that you, are, you and I are not saved because of our grandparent. You and I are not saved because of our dad or our mom or because of our brother or sister. We're saved because we possess that faith. We place our faith that Jesus came and the evidence of that is seen through obedience. A couple weeks ago, my son and I were on a run. He rides his bike. I run. I push my two-year-old in the stroller. My wife gets a break. We get exercise. It's a win-win for my whole family. And on this particular run... Sometimes Griffin likes to process life, and he starts telling me about how he can't wait to get bigger and bigger and bigger. He's like, I'm going to be bigger than Poppy. I'm going to be bigger than Gigi, and I'm going to do these things and these things when I get bigger and bigger. And I said, buddy, you know what I hope you do when you get bigger? He said, what? I hope that you walk with Jesus. He goes, yes, dad, that's the most important thing. And I'm like, as a father, I've made a lot of mistakes over here, but that one's in the wind column. He's saying that at four years old. Great. I've got it. And then I said, buddy, do you know how to walk with Jesus? And he goes, no. All right. So we started looking at it. I go, well, you got to, you read your Bible because as you read your Bible, God begins to speak to you through it. Okay. Yeah, we do that. Well, you got to pray because that's how you pray through Jesus to the father and through that connection there. Uh, Yeah, we do that. I said, and then you go to church because it's not just enough for us to individually seek God. We have to do it corporately together. And he goes, yeah, that's why I'm coming home from Gigi's house on Saturday so we can go to church on Sunday with you. I'm like, great. And then I said, but there's a whole nother component to it. It's not just enough to listen and hear. The evidence of that is obedience. And he goes, hmm, I don't know about that one. 
Like his own sinful little heart is like doing a cost analysis. Is it worth living this thing out and following in obedience? And that's, I mean, we say that, we see that in a four-year-old, but, but we do that too. Like the evidence of our faith is seen through our obedience to God's word over time. And not that we're going to be perfect, but there's this growing obedience factor that takes place. Notice then, here's the second question that Jesus uh, is asked. The Jews said to him, verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So their question goes, wait a minute. How can you say you're never gonna taste death when Abraham died and so did the prophets? Brief history lesson here. Follow with me. So Abraham became the father of the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, God calls him to leave his father and mother, to leave his family, to leave his land and go to a place that God has called him to. So Abraham steps out in faith and begins to do it. And then on this journey, he goes, wait a minute, how am I gonna be the father of a nation when I myself do not have a son to carry on my lineage? And so God takes him outside, and I believe it's Genesis chapter 15, has him look up into the sky, and he sees the stars in the sky, and God tells him, you're going to have more children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren than there are stars in this sky. And he said that to him at 99 years old. Now, I don't know any 100-year-olds that are about ready to have a kid, but a year later, God fulfills that promise to him, and he has the son of promise in Isaac. Now, throughout Israel's history, they are like, Abraham is the guy. He's the, the one that we all achieve to. He's the one that we're all prideful about. He's the one that we're grateful that we are descendants of him. So how are you saying, Jesus, that Abraham, who is a father of our faith, father of, of our nation, yet he heard it, obeyed it, and yet he dies, and then these prophets who heard it obeyed it, and even taught it, and yet they died, how are you saying that if we follow and keep your word, that we will never die? Because they misunderstood what he was talking about. It wasn't a physical death. It was a spiritual death that he's talking about here. And they missed it. And he says this next, if I glorify myself, Jesus' response here, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Right? Again, he's coming back to this. I'm not here to seek self-glorification. I'm here to glorify my father. And I give the glory to my father and then the father gives it to me. And there's this unification in the Godhead. There's this picture of his deity again. And it gives this picture of this eternal relationship between God the father and God the son. And he talks about this knowing, this experiential knowledge in 55. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you but I do know him and I keep his word. So like there's this experiential knowledge that happens from eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future through this intimate, close relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now, I don't know how to experience eternity past and eternity future, but I do know that in my relationship with my wife, I know a lot more about her now than I did 12 years ago when I met her. And in October, we're gonna celebrate eight years. And so, through this process, I knew 12 years ago that Morgan had blonde hair, that she grew up in Thurston, that uh, she was born to Rick and Geraldine, that she got saved in middle school through Young Life, that uh, 
she got, was one of the first people to get baptized at Ecclesia. Like I knew all of these things about her, how she was the life of the party and you always wanted to be around her because she was a lot of fun. But then as I get married to her and now we're almost eight years into this thing, like I know a lot more of who she is, not just about her, right? Like when I come home from work, if there's a certain look on her face, I know she's had a really, really hard day with our kids. If I look at her at the end of a day and she's doing this thing, it's a sign that she's extremely stressed out. Because I've experienced it. I've seen it over a period of time, right? If she stays up really, really late, which she's already a night out, but if she stays up really, really late, it's because she needs alone time and she's just tired of like little people's needs all the way around her. And so she'll stay up really late to like have this emotional recharge from being alone. So I've learned these things over the last eight years of being in this experiential relationship that is a personal and real one. And to a much grander scheme here that this is the relationship that God the Father and God the Son have from eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. And this is what he says in verse 56, speaking of the same idea. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So like Abraham's sitting here and he's looking forward. He has faith that a Messiah would come. He has faith that there would be this, this God that comes and to rescue the nation of Israel. And he was glad, he was excited about it. Hebrews 11.10 says this, for he was looking forward to the city that, was the found, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Right? He looked forward to that city. It was going to be greater than the city that he was in in Ur and Chaldean. It was greater than Jerusalem, which would be established for his descendants. It would be greater than where we live here because it was designer and builder was God. Look with me at Hebrews eleven thirteen and through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, speaking of all the men and women who were in the hall of faith here who looked forward to the coming Messiah. These all died in faith, not having received the thing promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Like, they looked forward to it. It hadn't been established yet. It hadn't happened, but they looked forward to their faith. We look back that Jesus has already come, and that we always look forward to the fact that Jesus will come again. So their faith was rooted in the fact that God was going to come, and there would be something greater than where they were living. The problem with these religious leaders was they were physically descendants of Abraham, but spiritual orphans to what he believed. It was not enough for them to be biological grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren because they had to spiritually possess it, own it, and begin to believe it themselves. And here we are introduced in this section to the second characteristic of the attribute of God in his deity, and it's his eternal nature. Jesus is eternal, which means that he is before the beginning and he is after the end. And we put those timestamps on there so that we as humans can be able to grasp some form of his eternal nature. But I love what Jen Wilkins says in her book, None Like Him. 
She says this in reference to his eternal nature. This is another way God is different from us. God is not limited by a time period of 70 or 80 years like us. For we are all products of our generation, tightly bound to the history into which we were all born. We are shaped by the events that happened in those 70 or 80 years. Even an age difference of 30 years can cause two people to see the same issue completely different. Man, that is so true of our day and age today. We are creatures of a particular era with a limited perspective born of limited years. In this, we could not be more different than God. Like when we look at our lives, we are shaped by a, a significant events that transpire in those 70 or 80 years. And if we're separated by five or as she says, 30 years, we see that same event completely different from generation to generation. God is not like that. He's not shaped by a particular uh, time period. He's shaped by eternity past all the way through eternity present. And that's the lens by which he looks in. That means he's different than us. He sees things different and and he because he has this eternal nature. Revelation 1.8 says this about the nature of God, or of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. He's like, I'm the beginning. There's a timestamp, even though I exist before that. I am the Omega. I'm the end. There's another timestamp, but I even exist outside of that. I have this eternal nature. And what this does incredibly for us as humans is this, that God had no missed opportunities in his eternity past. And God was not paralyzed by the present anxieties that you and I are dealing with. And yet he wasn't worried about the uncertainties of the future because in all of that, he is still eternal. So what does that do for you and for me? That means we do not have to hold on to the regrets and guilt and shame of the past. We can confess those things. We can get right with God through those things. And we can uh, heal from that process because we serve an eternal God. That means for us in the present right now that we do not have to be paralyzed by the present anxieties and fears because God in his eternal nature will see us through it and he will be with us. That means that when it comes to the uncertainties of the world and the future and our lives individually, we don't have to live in that uncertainty and be paralyzed by it because the eternal nature of God will continue to help usher us forward in this. And that's, that's good for us. And it's, it's a good reality for us to recognize in this. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 90, verse 1 through 4. Also speaking of the eternal nature of God. Moses pens these words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Again, he's not limited to a generation. He was in the 21st century, the 20th century, the 19th century, 18th century, and so on and so on. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth, the world, or you had ever, you had formed the earth and the world. Imagine this. How many of us in this room can say, I remember what Oregon looked like without Mount Hood? None of us. Because we were not eternally existent. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is this characteristic. This is this attribute. Okay, now contrast with this with humanity, verse three. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So he's eternal, we are not. This is an attribute that we do not share with God in this way. Turn back uh, to 
John chapter 8. This is what's so crucial for us because we are limited by a generation. We are limited by a period of time. And what happens is sometimes we are so focused in on what eternity future is going to look like that we become discontent with the present. So for example, if I just get married, then I'll, I'll be fulfilled. Or if I just have kids, then, then, then I'll be, have complete purpose in my life. Or if my kids just get out of diapers, then I'll have money, more money in my pocket. Or I'm 55 and if I, I just can't wait till I retire because then I have more time on my hand. And all that does, focusing on eternity from that, is in the present, it, it creates this discontentment in our hearts. And what we do is we miss the present opportunities God has in front of us. Because you see, Ecclesiastes chapter three says that God placed on each individual's heart this, this nature of eternity, this desire for eternal being. And we are not gonna find it and find fulfillment in it here on this earth. It only can come through a relationship with Jesus. And so what are we doing to make an internal impact upon the present reality and time that we are living in for all of eternity? It changes the whole perspective. It changes our whole focus where it's not around how can I get my kids out of diapers so I can save money, but how can I disciple my kids in self-control and obedience so that they learn what the heavenly father is to look like and that relationship can be this picture as I am an ambassador for Christ. It starts changing my view of my workplace and my money because all of a sudden it's not about me just continuing to climb the corporate ladder or working towards retirement, but it's about how do I make an internal impact upon my coworkers and the people around me and the welfare of my city through a relationship with Jesus and exposing this eternal nature that's on somebody's heart. Or it's not about pushing towards retirement. It's like, what am I doing with my coworkers and the people that I'm around right now so that they can be ushered into a relationship with Jesus and find the hope that is eternally offered to those who have a relationship with him, right? It's a game changer when we focus in on the eternity of God in a different way. Let's look at this third question that they ask him. Verse 56 or sorry, 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? It's like, wait a minute. You're like 50 years old. He wasn't 50 years old. He was in his 30s, Luke tells us. But 50 is a lot closer than 2,000 because Abraham had lived 2,000 years before this time. And so they're like, how have you seen Abraham when you're not even like 50 years old at this point? You're, not, you're like in your 30s. How is this possible? Jesus responds, verse 58, and I love this verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham even existed, before Abraham left his family unit, I existed beforehand. I am the self-existent one. And how do we know this? Because to a Western mind, I am doesn't mean a lot to you and I today. But to a Jewish mind, man, it was like, oh, he's claiming to be the self-existent one. Because back in Exodus chapter three, the story is, is that Israel had been in slavery for 400 years being abused and they're crying out to God, God, save us, deliver us. We can't take this oppression any longer. And so God raises up Moses and he's calling Moses in the wilderness through a bush that's burning. Now that would grab my attention too. If there's a bush that's burning that's not being consumed, yeah, I'm gonna focus in on that because every time I see fire, all it does is it deteriorates the very nature of whatever it's burning. 
And so God begins to speak through Moses, and he's, he's trying to convince Moses to become this deliverer and to deliver these two million people out of Egypt and usher them out. And he's kind of come up with every excuse, and he finally says, God, who do I say sent me? He says, I am sent you, the self-existent one. So to the religious leaders that are hearing Jesus say this before Abraham was, I am, it was like, wait a minute. He's claiming to be the same guy. He's claiming the deity of God. He's claiming that that he is in a relationship with God, that he himself is God. He's the self-existent one. And this is the third claim to his deity in this passage. Jesus is saying he is superior to Abraham. Revelation 4.11 says this about the self-existence of Jesus. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Okay, I'm going to give you a homework assignment with this self-existent. Ready? Imagine you have a piece of paper. You put it horizontally. On the left, you put self-existent one or uncreated. And on the right over here, you write created things. And you draw a line down, and I want you to brainstorm. Everything that's self-existent, you write on this side of the page. Everything that's created, you write on this page. Now, it's not going to take very long to realize that over here, it's God, and it's only God. But over here is a page full of things that God has created, and it's in his very nature that God creates. He's a creative God, and he didn't create because he was bored or lonely. He created because he desired to have this relationship with you and I, and if he he created out of being bored or lonely, then he wouldn't be the self-existent one. It would go against his very nature. And so there's this, this need for God or this, this desire for God in his very nature to create things, but God himself is uncreated. He created everything. He doesn't have to gather materials, pin a swatch board, or consult a color wheel. God speaks and the universe leaps into being from nothing. He creates something. Like this is so different than you or I, right? We, rearrange, we create by rearranging what already exists. God creates by the power of his word. I want you to think about how different we are. Okay, a couple weeks ago as a church, we, we financially supported two sheds to be built for people that lost their homes in the holiday farm fire. Me and a couple of guys, we went and did this. We took wood and spent eight to 10 hours building these two things. And then uh, for the next two Saturdays, we did one Saturday where we took one to Vida and then we assembled it and it took us another six hours. So we spent 16 hours building this thing. Okay, we rearranged material that already existed. God, on the other hand, goes, shed, boom. I would have saved a lot of time if I had that ability. That's the difference between being self-existent and being dependent upon creation. Okay, there's a big difference there. Now, even Skip, who has this time lapse where he puts it together, he did the whole thing in 90 seconds. God speaks it, and it would exist even before that. You see, God spoke and the universe was created. God spoke and the world came into existence. God spoke and fall, winter, spring, and summer in this rhythm of different weather. God spoke and there would be uh, snow and sleet and uh, rain and sunshine. God spoke and there was plants and there was animals. And God spoke and the crown of his creation, which was humanity, was created. That can only happen by being a self-existent one. When an uncreated, self-existent God speaks things into creation, 
This is how God is way different than you and I. Because with the self-existence of Jesus, it means for us that we are not owners, but stewards of the things that we have. We do not own our job. We do not own our kids. We do not own our money. We do not own our hobbies. We are called to be stewards of those gifts and talents that God has given us. If we were owners, we would not be given the gifts. But when we treat it as if we are owners, look what I've built at my job. Look at the, uh, what I've built in my business. Well, who gave you those gifts and talents to be able to do that? So that's, that's showing that you're not the self-existent one. You are dependent upon those gifts and skills. And so we have to give honor to that and be a good steward of it. Look at all the money I own. Look at my investments. Look at my retirement plan. Who gave you the ability to save? Who gave you the job to be able to do that? Who gave you the foreknowledge to be able to plan for the future? It wasn't you and yourself. It was the self-existent one giving you those gifts and those talents. So when we change our perspective that we are not owners of these things, but we are stewards of those things, we begin to have a whole different perspective because we recognize that God is the self-existent one and we are dependent upon him. Like, boil this down to even, like, all of us came from a mom, right? So we are dependent upon a mom to raise us or a dad to help raise us. We cannot claim that we were uncreated or self-existent. Biologically, it's not possible. Only God can be able to do that. And so we recognize that God is different than us in this. And so we, we begin to approach life not as owners of things, but as stewards to this reality. So how do the Jews respond? How do they respond to the self-existent one? How do they respond to his eternal nature? How do they respond to Jesus' claim being deity? Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When you're confronted with this self-existent one, the eternal nature and the deity of Jesus, they don't believe him, they don't receive him, they pick up stones to throw at him. And what's even more supernaturally amazing to me is the fact that he's able to leave a temple after teaching in front of them, these whole crowds of people, without them hurting him. Like, imagine I'm sitting on this stage and I say something that offends you and you wanna respond in violence, so you pick up these boulders and you're gonna start throwing them at me. How likelihood is it that I'm going to get out of here without you actually getting me? I got two exits right here, right? You're going to see exactly where I'm going. So there's this supernatural like ability Jesus has because his time had not yet come to vacate that premises, vacate that temple, which was the whole reason they were stoning him because they knew the very claims that he was claiming to be. He, the Jewish law was that you would be put on trial if you claimed to be deity and you couldn't prove it. And here he's proving his self-existence. He's proving his eternal nature. He's proving that he is deity. And instead of them receiving him, they reject him. The question for you and I, if we do not have a relationship with Jesus, is when we are confronted with how God is different than us, he's bigger than us, there's this nature of how we cannot be like him in this. Do we believe in him? Do we receive him? Or do we reject him? And my hope and my prayer is that you would believe John 3, 16, that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
It is through that message, it is through that reality that we can come into a relationship with God. If you already have a relationship with God and maybe you're like been convicted that you're treating things as like with ownership and you're not stewards of it like I was this week, we gotta go to the table of communion and we gotta start confessing these things and getting right and realigning uh, our hearts and opening our resources up with open hands to this reality that he's the self-existent one, I'm not. Maybe for you, you're, you're like anxiously awaiting for the season ahead of you and it's breeding discontentment and you're missing the opportunities and the urgency of the gospel to people who have desperate hope for some form, something to deal with their fears, something to deal with their anxieties, something to, to expose the eternity on their heart. Let's not lose that urgency. Let's capitalize on that urgency this summer. As things are opening up, as things are coming back into the trolley, let's usher forth this move of God by being his hands and feet and capitalizing on the harvest that is present, possible through our city right now. Because people are coming out, like they're craving something more. They're desiring for something greater. There's this eternity that's been placed upon their heart. And there's this need for hope in Jesus. And we have this opportunity, but are we going to capitalize on it? We have this opportunity. Let's do it. Let's pray.